0: A giant team rallied together for this first hackathon project and built a prototype of a wheelchair that could be driven with the eyes. And what happens with ALS is that eventually people will progress to the point where they will lose control over the muscles that allow them to move or speak or breathe. But very, very often they retain good control over their eyes. And so we can use that. Anything that you can still move, we can use, right? If you can move it, we can make a switch out of it.
1: That's our motto. You're listening to the Microsoft Research Podcast, a show that brings you closer to the cutting edge of technology research and the scientists behind it. I'm your host, Gretchen Huizinga. Ann Paradiso is an interaction designer and the principal user experience designer for the Next Enable group at Microsoft Research. She's also the epitome of a phrase she often uses to describe other people, a force of nature, Together with a diverse array of team members and collaborators, many of whom have ALS or other conditions that affect mobility and speech, Anne works on new interaction paradigms for assistive technologies, hoping to make a more bespoke approach to technology solutions accessible at scale to the people who need it most. On today's podcast, Anne tells us all about life in the extreme constraint design lane, explains what a PALS is, And tells us some incredibly entertaining stories about how the eye tracking technology behind the eye controlled wheelchair and the hands free music project has made its way from Microsoft's campus to some surprising events around the country, including South by Southwest and Mardi Gras. That and much more on this episode of the Microsoft Research Podcast. Anne Paradiso, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You're an interaction designer and a principal user experience designer at Microsoft Research. We're absolutely going to get to how you came here a bit later because it's a great story. But to get us going here, tell me what gets you up in the morning.
0: Well, I love my job and I love the people that I work with and what gets me up in the morning is coming in and collaborating with my team and my collaborators on some of my other teams and getting to work on something that I have a personal and meaningful connection to. I love the people that I collaborate with, the people who inspire me every day, the people living with ALS and other disabilities, and I feel very blessed that I get to do that for my job.
1: How would you describe the work that you guys are tackling? What kinds of questions are you asking? What kinds of problems are you trying to solve? I would describe the work that we're tackling
0: as extreme constraint design. We solve hard problems for people dealing with extreme constraints that are the result of disability. And everything about what we do is constrained in some way. Everything from... Being able to communicate directly with our user base and our collaborators to dealing with things like resourcing and funding and time, the essence of what I call extreme constraint design is that freedom can be found in very, very hard constraints. It seems counterintuitive because you think... You want to have all of these options and all of these choices, but constraints can be a forcing function and they can cause you to solve problems in unconventional ways that you wouldn't normally think of on a linear path. But a lot of the problems we're trying to solve can't be solved with a conventional linear path. You have to use unconventional methods, intuition and creative problem solving, and you have to have the resolve and the tenacity to be able to overcome some of the setbacks that come with such a constrained environment.
1: That leads really beautifully into the next thread, which is among your professional interests that you have listed in your bio, you include new interaction paradigms in assistive technology. and We're going to get much more deeply into the assistive part of this in a second. But it begs the question, what's wrong with the old paradigms? And why are they left wanting? Well...
0: The old paradigms work for a lot of people, and there's nothing wrong with paradigms that are already working. The problem is, for the people that we work with and that we collaborate with, there aren't any existing paradigms for them, and the ones that do exist don't take the whole picture into account. What we've learned working with the ALS community and some of the people with similar disabilities, other motor neuron disabilities, even spinal cord injuries or people who have other speech and motor impairment from disability is that a lot of times there isn't a one size fits all solution for somebody. Our disease space that we started with, for example, ALS has so much variation in onset and progression. Mm. People lose the ability to move their muscles in their body. But that happens in different ways and in different patterns. Somebody might lose speech first. Somebody might lose hand strength first or leg strength first. So it's very hard to come up with a sort of one-size-fits-all path for them. And also, I think technology is continuing to evolve. For example, we've had eye-tracking technology around for decades. But it hasn't been available at scale and in a way that we can prototype and experiment on. Now you can get an eye tracker for a couple of hundred bucks. You can plug it into a Surface device, use Windows Eye Control, which is something amazing that has come out of our team. um, That was led by Harish Kilkarni, one of my beloved colleagues. And we can do things now that would have been very, very expensive and purely academic maybe even five years ago, 10 years ago. So what we really want to focus on is helping people in the now to two-year time frame. Interesting. So part of it is that. Part of it is that stuff just hasn't been invented yet. Or if it has been invented, it might have been invented by a graduate student in a very small way just to show a proof of concept. But it isn't something that could actually be used mm. by somebody who needs it or supported or sustained. And so we have to get creative
1: I know that ALS, or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, has been a motivating driver for some of the projects you're working on. And people with this disease are literally, as you say, locked in their bodies. And normal interfaces don't work for them. So you've disrupted these interfaces and come up with some remarkable new technologies. And one of them is a project you worked on with Team Gleason. I don't assume that our listeners will know what that project is, but tell us about this project that you've done with Team Gleason.
0: Well, the way that we first got connected with the ALS community was through Steve Gleason. Steve Gleason is, it's an understatement to say that Steve Gleason is a force of nature. (laughs) He was a professional football player for the New Orleans Saints. He's a massive celebrity in New Orleans. And he's been living with ALS since he was in his 30s. Steve had a professional relationship with Microsoft. And when we had our first hackathon, he wrote a letter and he stated what he wanted Microsoft to work on in terms of his technology. He's saying, you know, hey, I'm using your technology and here's some opportunities for improvement. And he had great vision around this. I want to be able to move my wheelchair independently. I want to be able to argue with my wife. Some of the rumors have it he wants to be able to win arguments with his wife, (laughs) which is an LOL because she's also a force of nature. But he wanted to be able to meaningfully interact with his wife and he wanted to play with his son and raise his son. He wanted to be a father and a husband and a community member. He wanted the things that everybody wants. And a giant team rallied together for this first hackathon project and built a prototype of a wheelchair that could be driven with the eyes. And what happens with ALS is that eventually people will progress to the point where they will lose control over the muscles that allow them to move or speak or breathe. But very, very often they retain good control over their eyes And so we can use that. Anything that you can still move, we can use, right? If you can move it, we can make a switch out of it. That's our (laughs) motto. So anyway, this team got together and they won the hackathon and they were able to, as a result of that, sit down with Satya. I think they got an hour with him to talk about where they could potentially take it. And around that time, Next was forming the organization that I work in and a guy called Jay Beavers went to Peter Lee, who is the corporate vice president and leader of Next, and he said, I want to take this project and make it for real. Because at the time, Steve hadn't been able to drive it. It was a proof of concept. It wasn't made for real. And he said, I want to make this for real. And Peter funded the team. And so we set about taking that early prototype and making it real for Steve. In fact, Jay and I went down there and took the very first wheelchair components to him and. I was out in the yard playing with Steve's son, and Jay was collaborating with Steve, and they were working on it and working on it. We didn't know if it was going to work. We didn't know if it was going to work. And Jay says, come in here. And I come in, and Steve's got this big grin on his face, and he's driving. He's driving himself around. And it was just this great (laughs) moment. So over time, Jay and the team and I worked with Steve, and Steve tested the wheelchair, You know, used it, beta tested it. And we continued to refine it to the point where he can use it successfully. In fact, I was just at Mardi Gras, and I was fortunate enough to be in the Team Gleason crew. And Steve, I drove almost the entire parade route by himself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, watching that in action and watching him using our technology was a career highlight for me. You know, the other thing that we worked with Team Gleason on was working out some of our communication based technology. The very first thing that I noticed when we went down to visit Steve was we're sitting across from him as you would like as you and I are and he's using his eyes to type out his words and there's a pause and it continues and it continues and we don't know what's going on and you know we kind of get up and look around or call for a caregiver and oh You know he needs to recalibrate or he needs assistance and we have no way of knowing that the other option to that is standing over his shoulder and watching him type without being able to make eye contact it's not how humans communicate so every time we came home from a trip or from a pals visit or from any of our collaborative exercises we would sit down and have a debriefing session and we would start to brainstorm. And we came home and I was talking to John Campbell, one of the engineers on my team, saying, you know, we need some kind of a status indicator. We need some way for people to know, hey, I'm typing or I'm calibrating or wait a minute, I'm about to speak. Because that was the other thing that would happen is we speak so much more rapidly and we take this for granted than somebody can get words out with their eyes, right? So you're looking at maybe five... To 20 words a minute, depending on the accuracy and skill of the eye typer. So what happens is the conversation moves on more rapidly than the person who's using their eyes to type is able to get their thoughts out. And it creates disruptions in the flow of conversation. And you can see the effect of that on the person using their eyes to type. And so we were thinking, you know, how could you have somebody quickly in a conversation without having to type things out? And one of our interns at the time, who's now a full-time engineer here, Alex Fianaka, started to work on that exact problem. And he started looking at ways we could have conversation partners assist with typing speeds or ways that you could set your communication preferences, maybe, say, via your mobile device ahead of time. My eyes go up for yes, or I blink for no. Those are my gestures. So if you can ask me yes or no questions you know, that will help facilitate the conversation. Or, you know, one of the other things that he came up with was quick reactions. We had a keyboard that we've been prototyping and working with Steve on, working with several of our pals on, and we added these quick reactions to it where he could, without having to type anything out, have a laugh or a sigh or a groan or some way that you can be in the conversation more naturally. And we learned that from Steve because he was doing these things He already intuitively understood that and was coming up with these strategies. And we would watch him use those. And he would have a bunch of, you know, sort of messages or lead-ins or natural-sounding communication segues. He would have those stored. And we watched him have these remarkably natural communications that maybe some other people who hadn't been doing it as long hadn't mastered yet. And so we took those observations and
1: just directly translated that into features in our keyboard. That's absolutely. I mean, what it makes me think those three little dots that kind of circulate when you're texting, you know, they're typing and they're typing something long. (laughs) I'll wait. Or an emoji that can say, with one
0: picture, right? Is that kind of. That's exactly what came out of those early discussions. We had an early prototype of this device that we called the arc reactor because it looked like the arc reactor that Iron Man used because, you know, we're nerds and we're proud (laughs) of that. And it was a prototype device and we had some other interns come in and study it. And from this early work, all of our work around expressivity and communications was born. Mm. And a whole bunch of great outcomes came out of that. But what happened is we took that arc reactor and we wanted to extend it beyond status. And it was exactly what you said with the three status dots, was we had this round LED display that would basically function as that. Mm-hmm. You can take a lot of cues from text messaging. Absolutely. Because that levels the playing field a lot. And so we took a lot of inspiration from that. And then we extended that. We wanted to be able to express emojis, again, from text messaging. You know, this is something that everybody knows how to do. And that is a common paradigm that people understand. And it's part of our social communication now. So... At the time, we didn't have the resolution in that device to be able to create the emojis for real. You had to be able to write code. There was no preview environment. So it was a great proof of concept, but it wasn't tangible yet. So Gavin Janke, who's one of my favorite collaborators and my former boss on the advanced development team in Microsoft Research Labs, came up with this amazing authoring environment. And you can open up this environment in Windows. You can create basically anything you want to in it. You can take an animated GIF from the internet. You can drop it in and it will pixelate that and turn that into an emoji. And he worked hard on the hardware. What he did was he wrote all the firmware. He created an entirely new device and it had the resolution that we needed to be able to show those expressive emojis and things like that, which we then used off-label to use a pharmaceutical term, for our Hands-Free Music Project to give a visual affordance to each individual drum, which we'll talk about. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So this is sort of the nature of the nonlinear path of innovation here. Gavin just jumped in because he thought it was an interesting space. And so that was the birth of Expressive Pixels. And it was all from wanting to enhance expressivity between somebody living with ALS and their families or their communities.
1: Well, you know, the other thing that I'm thinking of is when you watch sort of remote interviews on TV and the person's got a headset. Yes. And there's that gap. We all have that uncomfortable fill-in-the-gap thing. And so what I hear you saying is that it's trying to make it more immediate and natural. That gap is one
0: of the key drivers. We have noticed this in almost every interaction we've either participated in or witnessed is that people in modern life are severely uncomfortable with silence. Discomfort is always a great driver for growth. And that discomfort was an amazing driver for innovation and technology.
1: You keep referring to pals. Yes. Tell us what that is. I know it's a thing. It's not just your buddy.
0: So it's both. It's one of those (laughs) delightful acronyms that also means exactly what it sounds like. PALS is the acronym that the ALS community uses for people living with ALS. And CALS is an extension of that, and that is usually a caregiver living with ALS. When I'm referring to APALS, and you hear that subject-verb disagreement, it's technically just me using the acronym for people living with (laughs) ALS.
1: At heart, humans are not just survival machines. We're expressive, creative beings for whom literature, art, and music fill our souls. And disabilities don't make us any less human. So tell us about the project you've worked on to empower differently abled humans to participate or continue to participate in creative expression, particularly the Hands-Free Music Project.
0: The Hands-Free Music Project is very near and dear to my heart for exactly the reason you stated. For me personally, music has been such an important influence in my life. And so what happened is early on in the process, several people had been sitting in a room having a conversation, people, experts from all over Microsoft. It wasn't just Microsoft Research. But having a conversation about how to design this keyboard. And I remember asking, has anyone here actually spent time with people living with ALS using a keyboard or not? And one woman who had been a speech-language pathologist had. I don't think anybody else in the room had. So we had a bunch of really smart people trying to solve a problem that they did not understand. And so the first thing that you do as a user experience designer is you have to go and understand your user base so that you fully understand the challenges and how to solve certain problems. We had had a meeting early on. And there was a guy called Mike Elliott, who is chief neurologist at Swedish Hospital. At the time, he was running the ALS clinic at Virginia Mason. And a woman, another force of nature, called Annie Eichmeier. And she was the care service director of the ALS Evergreen Chapter, which is the local wing of the ALS Association, which is a national organization. And the local chapter's sole purpose is to support the ALS community. They had heard about the hackathon and had come in and asked, how can we be involved? And I said, you know, we really need to find some local pals that would be interested in spending some time with us. Do you have any way that we could start to meet people? And they were all over it. Dr. Elliott said, please come to clinical rounds and we will find some people that might be willing to let you sit in on their doctor's appointments. And sure enough, they found us a couple of people. And so we got to know them and found out a lot about them personally, how they use technology, where they're struggling, you know, what do they love doing. And a lot of people had a strong relationship with music. One guy, he was in band, and he was pretty progressed at that time. Another guy was a music teacher. I met two or three drummers. I could feel how important that music was to people and that other forms of expression. Some people enjoyed painting. Some people were writers, but they really lit up when they were talking about things that came out of that creative well right, in them. Right. And so I couldn't stop thinking about that. And I came back and started talking to the team. And this is one of the many things I love about the Enable team. People are coming up quickly with ideas and how do we solve this? And we started kicking ideas around. And some people were saying, you know, no, we just can't do this. The timing problem is too hard. And I'm thinking, well, what's the alternative? You don't have access to creative expression? No, that can't be possible. So we started to talk to different people, and a lot of people were actually interested in the space. And we created a small sort of virtual team. The timing was great on it because... Things were aligning. We had the right group of people at the right time to work on an early prototype. We had also consulted with Steve Gleason. He had given us some great ideas on a looping-based mechanism. He showed us one of his favorite artists who goes on stage and she plays different instruments and records them, creates a loop, and then layers on top and then puts her vocals on top. And we thought, well, we can certainly do this. And Mm. it sort of started to come together. And this fantastic researcher, was visiting from UC Boulder. His name is Sean Kane, And he said, I've got an idea on how we might be able to do this. I need some equipment, but I think we can make this work. Proof of concept. How we could enable somebody to play the drums or percussion with their eyes. But we really wanted to do this for Jeremy Best. Jeremy Best is the guy that I was telling you about that I had met at Clinical Rounds. And I went back after our rounds and I was chatting with Annie Eichmeier and saying, you know, what is the deal with this guy? And they're like, oh my gosh, we love him. He's amazing. He was a high school teacher for 20 years. So I went and I found his band on Bandcamp, downloaded their CDs, started to listen. We passed it around and we started talking about how we might bring Jeremy back to his music. We didn't know if we were going to be able to pull it off. So we didn't tell him right away. So we had the drum kit. It was a kid's drum kit. We had it under a sheet So it was like just this ridiculous lump in the middle of the table. (laughs) And they roll Jeremy in and he's looking at the lump and he's got to go through, you know, research survey questions and do some speed tests. And, you know, he's doing a bunch of stuff that is really important stuff that we needed for other projects. But you could see he kept on looking over there. And finally, we finish the work part. And so we take the sheet off the drums. Sean starts to explain, you know, what we're doing and Does he want to try this? And Jeremy uses his speech device to type out, yeah, you might have to beep that out. But that's what he said. (laughs) So we calibrate him, we bring it in. Again, we don't know if it's going to work or not. We're all standing around like, please let it work. And he just starts ripping on the drums. And he's got this huge smile on his face. And it was just this great moment. And then what happened on top of it is Arturo Toledo, who's one of our designers on our team, And Arturo is also a DJ, and he had some of his equipment in, and he starts riffing on top of Jeremy's rhythms, and they have this moment where they're looking at each other, and they had communed. You could feel it. And it was at that moment where we were like, we're going to keep on working on this. This is definitely something that's worth investing in. And that's how that project got started.
1: So, Anne, that's a story that actually makes me cry as I listen to it, because I get that. You know, it's, that's what musicians live for is that in rowing, they call it swing where you're all together. You feel like you're one unit. Absolutely. Um, This story has another little chapter involving South by Southwest, the music (laughs) festival. Well, it's a tech festival, a music festival, a movie festival. It's all that now. Tell us the story of how the Hands Free Music Project (laughs) ended up at South by Southwest and what happened once it got there.
0: So picking up where we left off, where we had shown the proof of concept to Jeremy, we became energized by it and decided that was validating enough to keep the work going. We were trying to figure out, like, how can we put some cycles on this? Because we had other things that we were working on. We're working on Windows Eye Control. We're working on research and several other priorities. How could we keep this going? And so what ended up happening is I decided to hire an intern to come in and collaborate directly with Jeremy on hands-free music. And I came across this candidate named Paul Bachelor, And I knew from the second I Skyped with him that he was the one. So, you know, we were talking and he had ideas already. And I had said, you know, I don't have a lot of direction for you, but what I need you to do is work directly with this collaborator that we have and see what you guys can come up with. The goal is to get him to play music again. Mm. And he was a Berkeley College of Music undergrad, and he had gone to Stanford to their Karma program, which is Computational Music Program. And I remember asking him, you know, so you're a musician, but you're a scientist. You know, how do you balance that? And he said, well, I identify first as a musician, second as a scientist. And that was the other criteria was we wanted right. somebody who was a musician who would be able to think musically about this and not just computationally about this. So what ended up happening is he created this great interface based on a clip launcher, which is uh, an interface that's used sometimes in professional music composition software. Ableton Live, for example, has a clip launcher. And so he wanted to take paradigms that musicians knew and understood and use those instead of creating a brand new paradigm. But he used them in different ways. That uh, project ended up being called Sound Jam. So Paul was here for the summer. He created an interface a novel eye-gaze-enabled interface that had sort of four quadrants on it. And one quadrant was riffs, one was melody, one was percussion, and the other was sort of whatever we wanted to put in. Could be harmonies, could be effects, or whatever. And it was all generated on the fly. This was not created out of recorded wave samples or anything. He had mm. done all of this computationally. And so you could pick it up pretty quickly and start playing some music and then you could lay effects over it using your eyes. And he found really interesting and novel explorations of the space. And in Parallel, we were building on what is now called Sound Machine, which was codenamed D Music for Dwayne Lamb, who is the lead engineer on that project. And that came out of that early work that Sean Cain and Arturo Toledo and the team had done. And so we were working on Sound Jam in parallel. So we had two different explorations going at the same time. And I don't know what made me think of this, but I had said, you guys, all right, we're going to, I wanted to create a forcing function or a a target for people. You know, we're going to apply to South by Southwest. If we get this prototype up and working and we can get it released, because that was one of the criteria, we'll apply to South by Southwest. And at the time, I was also thinking, well, maybe Jeremy could play at South by Southwest. That was ambitious. You know, I mean, we didn't know where we were going to land it. And I was like, and I'll take you all. Like, I had no idea how I would do this. <laughs> uh, frankly, because I didn't think... Hey, I wasn't even sure we'd get it done. Then I didn't think we'd actually get it. Like We had to pull a lot off just to get the submission in. right? And I really wanted to get the submission in. We had to create a submission video. And we had a full-size drum kit built by the team, including not just the Enable team, but Chuck Needham, Irina Spiridonova, Gavin Janke from the Advanced Development team were important collaborators as well. So everybody pulled together to get this prototype going. And we brought Jeremy in to play it. And Henry filmed it for us. And it was, I think, the day the submission was due. We had to get this done. We didn't even know if we were going to get it working. Everything was coming down to the wire. We got the whole submission done like three minutes before the deadline. In fact, several of us had stayed late to finish it. And we sort of collapsed on the floor. And we were just like, if that's all that happens, that is enough. Like, we released Sound Jam, open source, that was important to us. We got the very first bits for Sound Machine released. So we were able to exercise our shipping muscle. We were able to get expressive pixels hooked in because we wanted a way to see visually what was happening on the drums. And so we were able to get that all hooked up and working. It just was crazy that we were able to get it to pull together. And so then we submitted to the Innovation Awards in two categories. They were supposed to notify us, I think, in December, and the time came and went, and we never heard anything. So I just assumed, you know, I got to give the speech of, you know, we didn't get in, but it's it's really not the point, you know. And so I think it was January at this time, I get this note from South by Southwest saying, you know, if you don't accept your nominations tomorrow, we have to give them to somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) We had gotten into both categories. How did you not know that? So I get a lot of email and my inbox has its own event horizon, just like a black hole. And (laughs) I had been checking and what happened is my clutter algorithm had grabbed it and put it into... The clutter folder, bad and so algorithm. I had checked. Well, and it was bad, Anne. Really, it okay. wasn't a bad algorithm. <laughs> that thing is usually helpful, except for when it's not. So we scramble accept the nomination, and then we have to get a trip planned. We have to get funding to get the whole team going, and you know Rico Malvar, who is our leader, and just a wonderful human being. He is. He and Jamie Riffley, who's our business manager, made it happen, and we got it so that everybody who had worked on the drum kit got to go. And we're trying to get Jeremy there. And in the end, we were not able to pull that off. And so what we decided was you will be there, but you're just going to be there digitally. And so one of the things that they require you to do at this event is to create an acceptance speech, a tweet-length acceptance speech in case you win. And you had to make a video as well. So we had engineers and designers pulling the video together. Everybody rolled up their sleeves, jumped in, and worked on things. Chris O'Dowd, who is our chief Hardware guy and builder of everything built a t shirt cannon that could be launched with the eyes. I mean, we had all kinds of cool stuff. And we went down there, and I was giving them the speech the whole time. It doesn't matter if we win, that's not important. What's important is now we have more people who might be able to work in this space that are going to see it. So we go to South by Southwest. And so then, you know, we win. We win the thing, and we can't even believe it. We win in the music and audio innovation category. And we really didn't think we would. We had no idea. And so we have Jeremy on FaceTime. He's got a speech prepared. We have Sean Kane, who was I talked about earlier, on my phone. And we all go up on the stage. And it's supposed to be this tweet-length acceptance speech. And we put Jeremy up. And so they can see him. He starts out by saying, Hi, I'm Jeremy Best coming at you from my living room in Seattle with a female synthetic voice. He's already got just his expression and his opening. He's already got everyone, right? right? And then he says, this is so much better than public speaking. I'm not even wearing pants. <laughs> Everybody cracks up. Then he goes on to deliver this gorgeous speech, which was not tweet length. And the guy who had handed out the awards was crying. People in the audience are crying. We realized as we're on stage that although everyone can see Jeremy, we hadn't reversed his camera. So he's basically looking at the top of Chuck's oh no. head. Same with Sean. <laughs> so they corral us. We finished the speech. Everybody else who went overtime got the music and got kicked off the stage except for Jeremy. And so we were able to experience that with him. And at the time... We didn't want to overrepresent what we had. You know, I think they wanted to tell this story like, oh, he's playing music again because of this. And and that wasn't true. We wanted to stay focused so that we could get there. But technology, like this sort of stuff takes time. It takes way longer than you think. So we focused the next year. We just kept on going to Jeremy's and we kept on working on it. And we finally got to a point where he had created his first composition. And it was just a great moment. And so we have so much more to do with that but we've already found other applications that we can do now.
1: And it's about this time in the podcast where I ask researchers the famous what keeps you up at night question. And I do it because I want to know How researchers are facing and addressing the idea of consequences, intended and otherwise, that come with all these new technologies. So given the scope of what you're doing and the world that you're doing it in with the Enable team, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Absolutely.
0: What keeps me up at night is knowing we don't yet have a cure for ALS. I've seen the suffering that ALS causes and the impact it has on families, and it is profoundly unfair And I've also seen firsthand the effect that technology can have restoring people's purpose in life, whether it's a creative purpose or whether it's raising your children or whether it's working or doing your taxes or buying a car. These are all things that our collaborators wanted to be able to do after ALS had taken their speech and their movement. We have this technology that we know can help. And we still have a barrier connecting that technology to the people who need it. We've made great strides with Windows Eye Control. Again, Harish Kilkarni and the Windows Input team have put so much heart into this. And that's the first step. But there's so much more that needs to happen. And that keeps me up. We started with a PALS program of 10 collaborators. And nine of them have passed away since we've been working with them. People that we love, that we've become very close with. And that keeps me up at night. And it will continue to keep me up until either there's a cure for ALS or we find a way to continue this work and to take it to scale where we really need to take it, not just in the United States, but outside of the United States where people have even fewer resources and less access.
1: So that keeps me up. And I love stories with an unconventional twist. Um, They're so much more interesting, (laughs) And you have one of those stories, uh, in that you're part of a relatively small group of researchers here at MSR that didn't arrive with a PhD in a suitcase. And your education path isn't necessarily what people would have thought, hey, this woman is gonna run the joint on user experience design for Enable at Microsoft Research. How'd you get here? That's a great question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it was, it was an alternate path. And you're right, as my friend James Mickens says, I did not go to the 25th grade. I had an unconventional upbringing. I struggled a lot in my early years. I was just dysregulated in general. And I didn't have some of the skills that I have now. But What I did have was champions. I had champions every single step of the way. I uh, was in my community college, which was really my only choice after you know that
1: flaming high school career. <laughs> yeah,
0: spectacular high school performance, and I was struggling there too. I had been living on my own. I had other issues that I was dealing with, and I was sitting in my philosophy class one day, and my philosophy teacher, Blair Morrissey, I still remember his name, asked me to stay after class, and he asked me do you want to go on with your education? Yes, I do. He put me in touch with the dean. We created a plan. I started to take things more seriously and become accountable to myself. And then I went away to university and I did fine there. I did great there. So I got it together. I got it together late, but I got it together. I was an English major. That was something that I just loved. And I started my career as an editor. And my husband and I wanted to move out west and we kind of came out to Seattle with two dogs and no jobs. We didn't know anyone. I started looking for work. And so on a whim, I applied for technical writing position at Microsoft. And I got there, and I didn't actually know what I was interviewing for. My interview was nine hours long. I didn't understand it. And I called this woman that I knew who worked at Microsoft, and I said, I think it was terrible. Like, it was nine hours long. And she said, no, it went well. You went all the way through. And right around the same time I had interviewed for a startup, it was during the big startup.com boom. And I had gotten an offer there, and I took that job. It was a PM job. And I worked at that job for 11 months, and then that whole company just tanked with most of the other startups, and we all got brought into a room. They said, we're done. We don't have any more money. Everyone's laid off. We all go to the bar. And I called the Microsoft recruiter a couple days later, and she said, you know, why don't you come back in and just meet the new director? You don't have to go through a new loop or anything. Just come meet this group. And I did, and I was a technical writer for three weeks, and they reorged, and then I became basically a web producer. I worked in the office group for four years, and there was a position available in Microsoft Research for a website manager. And I came and started that way. And we built a new web platform. And, you know, that was fun and interesting work. I built up a team. I started managing designers. And then when we shipped that platform, I started to have opportunities to work on interesting and cool research projects. And that was so great. And I knew I was like, this is what I want to do. And I got to work on some of the best projects I got to work on micro productivity with Jamie Tan and I got to work on pocket skills with Mary Srewinsky. and I just got to really stretch and I found the research work so much more interesting. And that was just a great fit for me. And so I did that. I worked on the advanced development team for 11 years and loved it and would have probably never left had not this opportunity, I was seeking a more meaningful connection. And I was talking with Peter Lee, who was just forming next, And he mentioned this team is forming around people with disabilities and you can work directly with the users. And that was it for me. I said, that's what I want to do.
1: As we close, Anne, what advice or words of wisdom could you give the next generation of researchers who might be interested in making interaction design and user experiences for anyone and everyone better?
0: I would say first
1: and foremost, follow your gut.
0: Be honest with yourself Learn from your mistakes, be fearless and care about something deeply. And if you find something that you care about deeply, stay with that. Things tend to work out that way. They really do. And you know, there are opportunities in tech for people that do come from unconventional or non-traditional backgrounds. And there's great, interesting, meaty work. There's great problem solving. Multimodal interaction is such a cool and interesting space and there's so much room for invention there. So stay with that. Figure out what your North Star is and stay focused on that at the expense of all things and everything else will become noise. And that is also what will give you the strength and the resilience you need to overcome the setbacks because this kind of work comes with a lot of setbacks and you have to fight a lot of battles. So yeah, be a bulldog. Anne Paradiso,
1: thank you for coming in today. It's been awesome.
0: Oh gosh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for
1: having me. To learn more about Anne Paradiso and how researchers are bringing innovative interaction design to people with disabilities, visit Microsoft.com research.